Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies and Public Health Emerita at New York University, and she's the author of several books about food politics. She blogs at www.foodpolitics.com and tweets at Marion Nessel. Marion Nessel, welcome to Bite Size Experts. Oh, glad to be here. Um, Marion, you've got two recent books, um, Unsavory Truth how Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, which was published in 2018. And the other, let's ask Marion, what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition and health, um, written with Kelly Truman, which was published in 2020. So if we can start by talking about Unsavory Truth, the, the title is fairly self-explanatory, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. How do they do this? Oh, they uh, do that by funding their own research. And what a coincidence. Research that's funded by food companies comes out with results that favor the sponsor's interest. Uh, This has been shown over and over again for research on chemicals, tobacco, pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, My book does the same. It's a copycat book. It does the same thing for food companies, something that just hadn't been done before. Um, I've been, uh, you know, I've been following nutrition research for a long time. And in about early in 2015, I got so upset about seeing these research studies where I could tell by looking at the title that somebody must have paid for them because I couldn't imagine why anybody would do research like that otherwise. And I'll give you an example. Um, Let me pick on mangoes. I mean, there are studies that show that if you eat mangoes, you're going to be smarter than people who don't eat mangoes. I mean, I think this is laughable on its face. It's very hard to believe that one food would make that much difference to somebody's intelligence. Um, It's much easier to understand that um, people who have money and and sometimes have more education uh, would be more likely to eat mangoes if they don't live in a mango, in a country that grows mangoes. So I started seeing these and I got so annoyed by them that I started posting them on my website, foodpolitics.com. Every time I had five of them, I would post five studies sponsored by one food company or another, all of them with results favorable to the sponsor. And I begged readers to send me examples of food industry sponsored research that did not come out with results favorable to the sponsor. But I got very few of them. And I did this for a whole year. I was kind of compulsive about it for a year. And at the end of the year, I had 168 studies. And of those that were sponsored by food companies, and of those 156, um, all but 12, came out with results favorable to the sponsor's interest. It made me mad. 
And so I started collecting much more information about this and put together Unsavory Truth, which is a book about how food companies influence research scientists, members of nutrition societies, um, members of advisory committees, that sort of thing. I mean, we've just seen in the United States dietary guidelines um, in which the agencies that are responsible for the guidelines had a scientific advisory committee that made recommendations, but they didn't pay any attention to the recommendations. They thought they were too severe. And so came up with less stringent regulations or recommendations. And the only, uh, I mean, we don't know how that happened, but the assumption is that food companies must have been involved because those recommendations involved alcohol and sugar. And the sugar industry and the alcohol industry are very interested in in making sure that dietary recommendations don't suggest eating less of their products. Can you give some brief highlights from the the book Unsavory Truth? Well, the the book is about um, how food companies influence nutrition societies, for example. I'm a member of the American Society for Nutrition, uh, which is an organization of doctoral level physicians and scientists who work on food issues, food and nutrition issues. And the, um, the organization is sponsored. It takes money from food companies. Um, it claims that the, that money doesn't influence what happens. But in fact, the society's position statements almost invariably favor food industry interests. The uh, researchers and scientists who are editors and members of the editorial committee of the journals that the society publishes um, have consulting arrangements with food companies. And the result is that you just don't have an independent independent entity looking at these kinds of issues. And food issues are very fraught and very subject to politics because if you tell somebody not to eat something, the company that makes that food is going to lose money, and they don't like it. What's the take-home message from the book? Well, I think the take-home message is that we need a much more independent um, nutrition enterprise that is going to be looking at these things. The public, in the United States at least, does not trust um, nutrition scientists, they are distrust the, they, they just say that nutrition scientists change their minds about advice all the time um, and they don't know who to trust. And therefore, why bother to follow a healthy diet when nobody knows what a healthy diet is? And that, of course, is just not true. We know what a healthy diet is. A healthy diet is so simple to explain that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that's really all there is to it. But if you follow a diet like that, you're not eating food products, which are the most profitable foods on the market. And companies are hurt by it, so they do everything they can to confuse the science, to follow the tobacco industry's playbook, 
First, you confuse the science, then you buy your own scientists, um, and then you make sure that the government doesn't do anything that might result in reduced sales of your products. You're always watching out for the bottom line on what you're producing. Turning now to Let's Ask Marion, this is a question and answer book with you in exchange with environmental advocate Kerry Truman. How did the idea for the book come about? Well, this was one of those books that was suggested by the publisher. Um, I call this my little, my version of Mao's little red book, because it's a tiny little red book. It's um, a, in very small format. It's, does, it's very short. Uh, the essays in it are very short. Um, the University of California Press came to me about three years ago and asked if I would do a short book. I think their idea was this would be something that would be sold at um, checkout counters um, you know, with a big pile of them at checkout counters that you could just pick up when you were checking out at a bookstore. Um, and it would explain my views of food and nutrition, the way I, my thinking has evolved about it over the years, um, and would be a very short summary of the books that I had written for University of California Press, all of which have hundreds of pages and thousands of references. Um, so I said no, I wasn't interested in doing that. Um, because I didn't think I could summarize thousands of pages of books in, um, very, in, in a very short way. I find short essays quite difficult to write. I much prefer long form. And the, uh, they came back about a year later and said, well, how about taking a collection of your articles that you've already published and putting them together in a book and um, demonstrating the trajectory of your thinking over the years. And so I did that, and they turned it down. Um, they said they didn't want to publish previously published work. Well, thanks a lot for that. Um, and then they kept pushing on it. And finally, I remembered that about 10 years ago, Carrie Truman, who's a friend um, and a colleague, would was at that time writing a blog called Eating Liberally, which she's no longer doing. And she would write me these questions that were really mini essays. They were a couple of hundred words. She's very, very well informed about nutrition issues. And she would write me these complicated, interesting questions um, that were really fun to deal with. They were often about things I had thought of. And I would just sit down and whip off the answers and send them back to her immediately. And I remembered that and thought, ah, oh, that might be something I could do. How about if Carrie does questions and I do answers? And University of California Press said that was okay. And we did that. And we decided in advance what the questions would be about. They're mostly the ones that we get asked the most. Um, and we put it together. There are 18 of them. Six are on personal diets, six are on community nutrition politics, and six are on international food politics. And I wrote an introduction and a conclusion, and there's some references, but it's very short and very easy reading. Her questions are 150 words. My responses are a thousand words. You can read the whole thing in an hour. Um, and it's, it turns out it's useful for classes. I've used it in class. 
Um, people who've read it say they really like it. Nobody wants to read long form anything during the pandemic. So its publication during the pandemic was probably a good thing. Now you say the, um, the, the format is of questions that are most asked about food. Do you think there are any questions that should be asked that if you were to think about it, what could be in, in, in this book? Well, I tried to deal with the questions that I thought were most important. And in fact, I have one um, that, you know, really hardly anybody asks about, which is about the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, because I think they're really important um, and Americans don't know about them. I mean, maybe people in Great Britain do, but certainly the uh, Americans don't know anything about the Sustainable Development Goals. I thought they were really important. I also wanted to talk about the importance of having ideals about what an ideal food system looks like, um, because I think it's very important to have in mind um, what we should be working for, even under the political, current political systems, it seems impossible to get there. Um, and certainly during the Trump administration, it was extremely difficult to think that any uh, changes would take place that would benefit the public at large. Um, we have a new administration coming. We hope that you know, things will be a little easier from now on. Um, but, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm very interested in promoting uh, advocacy for healthier and more sustainable food systems. It's what I teach. It's what I want to talk about with the students that I'm dealing with. And it's what I want to write about. And that's what I did in this book. It's certainly very important and very timely to be thinking about this. Have you engaged with environmental issues more broadly in your work? And how important is it for you right now? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because I started out you know, decades ago being very interested in food. But the only options for studying it at the time that I went to university uh, were agriculture and dietetics, and agriculture made no sense to me. I grew up in cities. I didn't know anything about agriculture, um, and I ended up not being a dietitian because I ended up being a scientist. My degree is in molecular biology. Um, but over the years, I came to realize more and more that if you want to understand why people eat the way they do, you have to understand the agricultural production system. Um, you have to understand how tightly agriculture is linked to food consumption. And that if you're going to change food consumption patterns, which we need to do because people are eating too much and too much of the wrong kinds of foods now, uh, you need to link agricultural policy to health policy in a way that's not thought of at all in the United States um, and really needs to change. And that's a new kind of thinking. I didn't catch on to this until about 10 or 20 years ago. Um, 
really, I mean, I, I sort of knew that it was important to understand because in the first course that I ever taught about nutrition, which was in the mid-1970s, I remember giving students a set of very detailed and complicated articles on the politics of sugar um, that had been written in, of all places, the New York Review of Books in the mid-1970s. And the those articles talked about how if you want to understand why sugar is put into everything and and the sugar industry is as powerful politically as it is, you need to understand how the agricultural system works, who owns it, um, how it's become vertically integrated, um, you know, how small agriculture became big agriculture, uh, the kinds of things that most city dwellers just don't know anything about because they're not in the Midwest looking at enormous factory farms, which is what we have in the Midwest now. Um, so I think for much of, if you want to understand, certainly if you want to understand American politics, you have to understand how the agricultural system works because it's the agricultural states that most support President Trump. That's where his base is. And they're supporting Trump because of what has happened to rural America. It's been depleted of people, of schools, of hospitals, of educational systems, of populations, because everything's done with machines and immigrants. And the immigrants aren't allowed to stay there. Or if they are there, the people who have grown up in those places forever, forever don't like them very much. Um, so, I mean, that's the basis of the American political division right now. Um, and it certainly explains a lot of the food system problems that we have in the United States, many of which were revealed by the coronavirus pandemic in a way that I've never seen before. I mean, I've been talking about uh, problems in the rural Midwest for a long time, but now everybody understands what's happening to meatpacking workers because meatpacking plants became epicenters of coronavirus transmission. You know, there have been nearly 80,000 cases of known cases of coronavirus among meatpacking workers and farm workers and workers in the meat industry um, in a situation in which the meat industry went to the president and said, you have to keep these plants open. If you don't keep these plants open, people won't have any meat and they won't survive without meat. And the president did that and invoked the Defense Production Act in order to force the workers to keep working and keep the plants open. And the workers complained that they weren't given any protective equipment. They were forced to work when ill um, and were treated and they didn't have any sick leave and many of them aren't unionized. It was really an awful situation absolutely clear on the front pages of the newspapers, talked about on television programs. Everybody in America who's watching these things knows what a problem the meatpacking plants are. That's new. And if the coronavirus pandemic did anything good, it was to demonstrate to people what the flaws are in the food system. 
The other one, of course, was um, people were out of work. When, it, when restaurants closed and institutions closed, millions of people were put out of work. They didn't have any money for food. So they started lining up at food banks and private food distribution centers in ways that we haven't seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s. That, too, was on the front pages of newspapers. So, you know, I'm hoping that these revelations will lead to policy change because we certainly need it. But those of us who have been advocating for policy change hope that this will translate into something useful. The conclusion of Let's Ask Marion is to take action. How do you see that could happen? Well, I think the, you know, the, there was a very interesting report in The Lancet early in 2019 um, that talked about the need to uh, promote a diet that prevents people from being hungry, that prevents chronic diseases, obesity, and the diseases for which it's a risk factor, and also prevents climate change. And as it happens, the same diet does all three of those. And that's a diet which in westernized, industrialized countries contains much less meat and many more vegetables than people are commonly used to eating. So less meat, more vegetables. Um, And we know what that dietary pattern looks like. And the question is, how do you go about getting a dietary pattern like that? Uh, Well, the big problem with a dietary pattern like that is it's not profitable to the companies that make food products. And so that report, referred to as the Global Syndemic Report, unfortunately, uh, it's a title that's just not very clear, uh, that report talked about what the barriers are um, in society to getting people to eat less meat and more vegetables. And those barriers are very weak government that's been captured by corporations. So the government doesn't act in interest of the people. It acts in interests of the corporations. So that's one element. The other is weak civil society, which in the United States has been weakened over the years through policies that that weakened unions particularly. Um, and that drove people apart, and we see the results of that now. So we have weak civil society for uh, organizing around food issues. And then the third barrier was a very strong food industry, uh, which is enormously opposed to any kind of public health measures that would improve diets and get people eating more vegetables, less meat, and fewer food products, is particularly what are now called ultra-processed food products. Um, so if you want to do something to have a better food system, you've got to do something about all three of those. Well, fixing government is a little bit difficult. I, I can't even, I, w- I wouldn't even know where to start on that, uh, at least in the United States, where um the government is so far gone, and I don't know whether we'll get the kind of improvements that I think we need. Um, you can't, you know, civil society is a great place to start organizing, and I want our students at New York University, where I work, uh, to learn how to be effective advocates. 
for food systems that are healthier for people in the planet. Um, the other thing we could do would be to regulate the food industry. And that report had a great big long list of things that governments could do if they had the strength and the political will to do them that would allow food companies to still make a profit because they need to make a profit to stay in business, but they don't need to be as greedy as they are. You know, they don't need to pay their executives the kinds of um, salaries that their executives get while not paying their employees, for example. Um, They could restrict the ability of food companies to market to children, as one example. Um, In our country, um, any kind of marketing expense is a business expense that gets deducted from taxes, so that in a sense, the population is supporting the ability of food companies to market junk foods to kids. Um, You know, once you think about it that way, you think, well, we could stop that. Um, Keep food companies out of public policy decisions. No, they don't need to be at the table when public health policy is being made. Um, So these kinds of things are things that are worth working toward. And what I try to do is to teach students how to go about being effective advocates. It turns there's a playbook for how you do advocacy effectively. It's not very easy to do, but everybody knows what effective advocacy is, and we have examples of it in the United States uh, that are very prominent. The most prominent example is the uh, soda tax initiative in Berkeley, California, where they did everything by the book. They had a very clear goal. They knew exactly what they wanted. They did fabulous amounts of community organizing around that issue. They went door to door and visit canvassed families, talked to families about uh, what sugar-sweetened beverages were doing to their health and the health of people in their family, the relationship of diets high in sugar to type 2 diabetes, Uh, And they got a lot of support across the entire community for passing a soda tax initiative. It passed by a vote of 76%. Unheard of in American politics. Anything that was so extreme. 76% of the voters from all communities in Berkeley voted for the soda tax. The other thing they did was to promise that the revenues from the soda tax would be used for community purposes, and they have stuck to that promise. So it's a very popular initiative there. Well, that's an example of how it can be done, and other places are doing things like that too. Well, Marion Nessel, let's hope many people read, let's ask Marion, many practical suggestions, many people read Unsavory Truth. Marion Nessel, thank you so much for taking part. My pleasure. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tesbird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. 
The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.